Good morning. So again, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Jack Birdsall, and I'm currently serving as the Interim Director for Music here at Evanston Bible Fellowship. I started attending EBF five years ago when I was a freshman at Northwestern, and my involvement here has played a huge part in my spiritual and personal growth. I joined the worship team shortly after I started coming here, and while serving on the worship team, I got to know a fellow volunteer named Aaron Donahoe. Lo and behold, Aaron and I are getting married in 34 days. Thank you. At the end of August, I took on the role of Interim Director for Music, and it has been an honor to lead this congregation in worship week in and week out. I am extremely thankful for this opportunity to serve and for the faithful team of volunteers that work alongside me. So Psalm 3. Psalm 3 is not a typical psalm. Normally when we think about the psalms, we think about joy, we think about praise, we think about David, the king of Israel, writing songs about how great God is, and writing about him being our creator and our king. We think about David joyfully responding to the good things about God and what he is doing. So generally, we think positive. But Psalm 3 is a psalm of lament. It's a psalm born out of pain. This is a psalm written in response to sadness. Lament is defined as a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. A passionate expression of grief or sorrow. So what we'll be getting into in this psalm is the context behind that grief and the situation that's causing that sorrow. In order to really understand the heart behind this psalm, we need to know the situational and historical context behind it. So what we'll be exploring this morning is the backstory that leads to the writing of this psalm. And with this context in mind, we'll be able to unpack this psalm on a really deep and intimate level. What we're going to discover about this psalm is that David is not just lamenting the situation he's been put in. He's not lamenting about any physical danger that he's in and the possibility of him getting killed by his enemies. What David is really getting at here is the endless barrage of lies that he has put up against and how these lies seek to drive him further from God and dismantle his trust in God. What we're going to see about this psalm is that David is calling on God to defend him, not from physical attacks, but from the enemy, but from the lies thrown at him. What we are going to see is that God's word is greater than any lie that can be thrown at us. God's word is greater than any lie that can be thrown at us. So let's start by getting a backstory on David. And then we'll go verse by verse and unpack what he's really saying. But before we jump in, let's pray. God, you are the source of all truth. I pray that you would speak your truths to us through this sermon and that our hearts would be open to what you have to say to us through this text. I pray that your spirit would be present in this room and be working in us. I pray you would give me wisdom as I speak to this church. I pray all these things in your name. Amen. 
So one of the first things we notice about this psalm is the heading before verse one. The heading says, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. We can already tell that this is not a good situation. It's not hard to imagine that fleeing from your son would be a fitting situation to lament over. But let me rewind to the beginning of David's story in the Bible to give us a full picture of this situation. If you've ever seen those movies where it starts with a scene way further down the storyline and then the main character's voice comes in and says, you're probably wondering how I got here. This is essentially what we're doing right now. So let's find out. How exactly did David end up fleeing from Absalom, his son? So David's story begins in the book of 1 Samuel, when he is commissioned by King Saul to be a musician in his court. He plays the harp for King Saul whenever he is being tormented by evil spirits. David has a quick rise to fame shortly thereafter when he strikes down Goliath, a champion of Israel's enemy, the Philistines. David becomes a successful and charismatic leader for the Israelites and leads them on to more and more victory over the Philistines. While this is happening, Saul starts stirring up a plot to kill David out of fear that David's rising popularity would lead him to take Saul's throne from him. David successfully avoids Saul's attempts to kill him and even passes up very easy opportunities to kill Saul himself. Saul dies in battle and then David becomes king of Israel. As king, David leads the Israelites to further victory against other enemy nations and sets up his capital in Jerusalem. So far, so good, right? At this point in time, David is doing really well. He has strong rapport with his people. He's bringing his country together and is facing victory after victory in battle. David has sprung out of his extremely humble origins as the youngest son of a shepherd to being a beloved king of Israel. Things quickly take a turn for the worse for David. Right out of the gate, we get two back-to-back family disasters. David's affair with Bathsheba and David's son Amnon sexually assaulting his sister Tamar. David's response to both of these incidents truly reveals David's weakness. After David finds out that Bathsheba is pregnant with his child, he does everything he can to cover up his mistake. He calls Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, back from war and tries to get him to sleep with his wife so it'll seem like the child is his. When that doesn't work, he deliberately sends Uriah to the front lines of battle to be killed and takes Bathsheba as his wife. When David hears about the sexual assault of Tamar by her brother Amnon, He does nothing. He takes no action when he hears the news. David's inaction in this circumstance is the root cause of David's conflict with his son, Absalom. Absalom no longer believes David's ability to lead their family or the kingdom of Israel. Absalom conspires against David and anoints himself as king. David flees from Jerusalem with all the people that are still loyal to him. And finally, this brings us to Psalm 3. Most biblical scholars believe that David wrote this psalm to the Lord before his men went into battle with Absalom. 
So here we have a man who has seen great success all of a sudden completely fail, miserably. His repeated failures have torn his family apart and ruined his reputation. He had an affair, and in an attempt to cover up his mistake, had a man effectively be put to death. After that, he shows pathetic indecisiveness in dealing with the aftermath of a sexual assault in his family. He's been driven out of his own city by his own son. So with all this context now in mind, let's jump back into the text. Naturally, the psalm begins with a lament. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. This is David's introduction to the issue at hand. Those rising against him are hitting him where it hurts. Everything good that has happened in David's career at this point has been out of service to the Israelites and has happened by God working through David. And David knows this. We can only imagine how painful it is for David to hear taunts from his own people that God has forsaken him and will not save him. And honestly, I don't think it would be that hard for David to believe, given the mistakes that he's made that have led him to this situation. The unresolved issues and sin that David has left behind at home make it all the more easy for David to think that God may have left him behind, to believe that God is no longer with him. David is in grave danger of losing hope. So often, It's the unresolved issues and unresolved sin in our lives that allow lies from the world and lies from the devil to take root in our hearts. We absolutely have to keep confessing our sin to the Lord and seeking forgiveness so God can keep speaking into our lives and keep pushing lies out. These verses also establish the use of words and speech as a key theme of this psalm. It's important that the very first thing that David notes about the enemies rising against him is about something they're saying, not of anything that they're doing. Their primary attack against him is through deceitful words. Let's move on to verse 3. Here we see a shift from David lamenting about his situation to stating truths about God. He writes, But you, O Lord are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. In this verse, David uses three distinct words to describe God's character. Shield, glory, and lifter. Shield, glory, and lifter. He says that God is a shield about him, indicating that he is being protected on all sides. David describes God as his glory, which is something that has become extremely clear to him in the recent events of his life. Through David's shortcomings of character, it has become clear to David that any and all glory comes from the Lord. On his own, David does nothing but bring disgrace, shame, and division to his family and to his people. David is glorified through God and not through himself. 
David describes God as the lifter of his head. In response to his failures as a king, husband, and father, we can assume that he would often be hanging his head in shame. In response to the lies being told about him by his own people, we can only imagine the shame and guilt overcoming David and how that would cause him to lower his head. But God's glory and God's truth have the power to absolve David of his shame and to cancel out the lies coming at him from all directions. Through God, he is able to lift his head again. God is David's shield from the enemy's lies, the true source of David's glory, and the one who restores David's joy and hope once again. In verse 4, David says, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Now we have David taking action. Now David uses his voice and his words to call out to the Lord. He's not calling out in response to the words of his enemies. He instead turns to the Lord amidst the voices shouting out at him. This verse also marks a shift to the past tense, as David recalls times in the past when God answered David's call. God answered him from his holy hill. God's words and God's glory is so much greater and beyond anything that any man can say or do. God's power and his role in this conversation come from a much higher and more significant place than that of David or his enemies. God's answer to David from his holy hill, whether in word or deed, smites out any attempt from his enemies to defeat him or discourage him. In verse 5, he says, I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. Even while David is on the run from his own son and his people that his son has turned against him, David is able to find rest. Because of God's power over his enemies, David is able to fall asleep and not worry about being attacked in the night. This verse isn't talking about David accidentally falling asleep while on the lookout for Absalom and jolting awake in fear to then find that nothing happened. This verse is about David calmly laying down to sleep, fully knowing and fully trusting that God is protecting him. He wakes up again to see that his trust in the Lord is correct and that nothing has happened to him. Verses four and five show a shift in David's attitude from lamenting his situation to having a strong confidence and peace in God's sovereignty and God's protection over him. This continues in verse six. In verse six, it says, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. We know this because of what David says earlier in verse three, that God is a shield about him, not a shield in front of him or alongside him, but a shield about him, protecting him in all directions. David has reached a point of sincere and authentic trust in the Lord. He's not worried about the thousands of people set out to attack him. Neither is he dismayed by the things they say about him. David now shifts from affirming his confidence in the Lord to now moving forward and talking about the events that are to occur that day. In verse 7, he says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, 
for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. He is prepared to go into battle against Absalom because he knows that God is with him and protecting him. But again, he's not really talking about actual fighting in the passage. Striking an enemy on the cheek and breaking its teeth is similar to what people did in that time when put up against dangerous animals. They would break the animal's teeth in order to make it unable to bite them. David compares his enemies to these beasts as a way of illustrating that God ultimately silences David's enemies by striking their mouths and making them unable to speak. So like a beast who is no longer able to bite their prey, David's enemies are no longer able to speak falsely of him. Much of this passage is about the power of words and how God's word and God's truths are greater than those of any man. The words of others are so inconsequential and powerless that their mouths and teeth may as well be broken. I'll say that again. The words of others are so inconsequential and powerless that their mouths and teeth may as well be broken. Like I said before, Aaron Donahoe and I are getting married in 34 days. And one of the reasons that I'm so excited about getting married to her is because of the ways that God has worked in me and shown me things about myself through my relationship with her. I'm extremely excited for how God is going to use my marriage to work in me for the rest of my life. But let me take you all back to the beginning of our relationship. When Aaron and I started dating, I was convinced that I had no business dating her. I was convinced that I had found myself in a relationship that I did not belong in. I constantly compared myself to her and our friends. I believed that I was not spiritually mature enough to lead my relationship with her and that God would never get me there. My personal relationship with God had been on a steady decline over the past year or so, and I always felt ashamed when Aaron would ask me what God had been teaching me recently, and I would have basically nothing to share. I was no match for her in my mind, and I was trapped in my insecurity. I figured it would only be a matter of time until she figured out who I really was and left me. Deep down, I believed that God was unable to build me up into a person suitable for dating Aaron. I believe that Aaron's spiritual maturity was so far beyond mine that no matter how much God worked in me, I could never add anything of value to the relationship. I believed I had nothing to contribute. I never shared any of these feelings of insufficiency with people around me or with God, for that matter. Because of this, these lies I was telling myself became deeply rooted in me. And then finally one night, I felt like I couldn't keep these feelings away from Erin anymore, and I told her everything. I told her that I wasn't a person capable of being the boyfriend that she deserved to have. I told her that I would never be sufficient for being a leader in our relationship. Thankfully, that wasn't the end of the road for us. Aaron listened and loved me despite my insecurities, and to my surprise, 
confessed her own insecurities and some of the lies she had been believing about our relationship. Namely, that she felt she had to perform for me in order to be the spiritually capable girlfriend I needed her to be during this valley of mine. She, too, had insecurities about where her worth stood as a child of God. For so long, she had believed the lie that her worth came from her performance of being perfect. Not from who God says she is, a broken but beloved child of God. So let me stress the irony that here I was feeling insecure because I believed the lie that God would never grow me into a good enough boyfriend for Aaron. And meanwhile, here was Aaron, whose perfection was only a facade because she believed a lie that told her she had to perform spiritually in order to be loved by me and loved by God. Through our conversation, we realized how destructive these lies had been for our relationship. And I promised to be more honest with, and we promised to be more honest with each other about where we were spiritually. And more importantly, to be more honest with God. So this was a step in the right direction for me. But ultimately what I should have done first was confess and surrender my insecurities to God. I should have invited God in to break down the lies I was believing about myself and show me my true identity as a child of God. As I've moved forward since that conversation I had with Aaron, God has worked in my life to dismantle my insecurities God's truth working in my life has made any lies that come at me inconsequential. The lies that I used to believe in have now had their teeth broken, and they can no longer speak to me. Verse 8 brings everything together when David says, Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. David is concluding on the fact that God is the only one who can grant salvation to people in need. David spent the first half of his career rising in fame and popularity, facing success after success, until he found the limits of his character. He failed. He failed to own up to his mistakes. He failed to take charge of his family, and he failed to reach any kind of reconciliation with his son Absalom. These events in David's life make it clear that salvation is not his to give out, but only the Lord's. Salvation belongs to the Lord. This whole story is a picture of God's sovereignty over David and all the Israelites. And although this is a psalm written in the context of a battle, I don't believe that David at any point wishes actual physical harm upon any of his enemies. The people that he is going into battle with are his own. They are fellow Israelites that have sided with Absalom to conspire against him. In many points throughout 2 Samuel, David is saddened by the death of people who have acted wickedly or sided against him. Before they go into battle, David specifically asks for no one to kill Absalom. But David's overzealous men kill him when given the chance. David is deeply deeply saddened by this. So at the end of verse 8, we have David saying, your blessing be on your people. In regards to this battle taking place, David is wishing God's blessing on everyone involved. 
they are still God's people. So in the end, this psalm is not really about the physical battle being fought between David and Absalom. This psalm is not David calling on God to strike down his enemies with lightning. This psalm is David calling to the Lord to be sovereign over the situation at hand and to speak his truth into David's heart. So that though many are saying of him, there is no salvation for him in God, David would still be holding fast to the truths of God's character. So that David would not lose heart and would continue to believe that God is with him. That God would strike down the false words of his enemies through his great truth. Our God never forsakes us, and our salvation through him is not contingent on anything that we do, but only on what he has done. And what he has done for us is that he came down to earth as a man and died for our sins. He took all the blame and the shame and the guilt for all of our mistakes and paid the price for it so we can be blameless and be with him. And in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26, it says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God's word and God's truth came into the world in the form of a person, Jesus. In the same way that God had the power to absolve David of his shame, our redemption through Christ has the power to absolve us of all of our guilt. Christ has the power to free us from the lies about God and ourselves that we've been trapped in because of sin. We don't need to believe that our shortcomings and our failures are enough to permanently separate us from God. Christ's death on the cross has destroyed those lies and given us an opportunity to be with him. So what do we do now? There are lies upon lies upon lies out there in the world that can be embedded in us whether we know it or not. Lies from our enemy that want to make us believe that God is no longer with us or that we have gone too far with our sin for God to still save us. But God's truth is a shield about us, our glory and the lifter of our head. We need to be crying out to the Lord for him to remove these lies from our hearts and fill us with his truth. We need to pray that God would destroy these lies at the source, wherever they come from, and that we would always be looking to Christ for our salvation. Let's pray that right now. Lord, I pray that you would step into our lives 
and reveal to us the lies that we've been believing. Show us that these lies come from places of unbelief, places of fear, places of insecurity, and places of evil. I pray that your spirit would work in our hearts and show us the truth. I pray that our hearts would be open and ready for the work that you want to do in us. I pray that we would seek your truth, hang on to your truth, and know your truth. I pray for those of us in this congregation who are stuck believing lies that we don't need you or that your grace is not sufficient for us. I pray that you would rule in our hearts from this day forward. Amen.